HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Michter's Distillery. Visit michters.com to find out how their taste is everything, cost be damned, attitude is creating some of the finest whiskeys available. My name is Hannah Forden. I'm the membership coordinator at Heritage Radio Network, but even before I joined the team, I loved listening to HRN during my subway commute. It made the time go quickly and left me feeling inspired for the day ahead. HRN listeners tune in from all over the world, but there are a few traits that we all have in common, no matter where we listen from. A curious palate, the fierceness to make a difference, and a hunger for lifelong learning about the culinary world. As you know, Heritage Radio Network is a listener-supported nonprofit. To deliver the most ambitious, entertaining, and of-the-moment stories in 2018, we need your help. We need to raise $150,000 by December 31st to accomplish these goals and to keep your favorite shows on the air. Together, we can make this HRN's most exciting, impactful, and delicious year yet. No matter how much you choose to give, you'll feel awesome next time you tune in, knowing that we wouldn't be here without you. Become a member by donating today. Join us at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate, and you'll immediately start enjoying benefits such as VIP invitations to HRN events, where you will mix and mingle with your favorite hosts. Plus, we have great member swag. Show off your HRN pride with a t-shirt or keep your hands safe in the kitchen with an HRN potholder. Memberships also make a perfect holiday gift for all the foodies in your life. This year, why not give the gift of food radio? You'll hear your generosity in action for the year to come. Help keep our lights on and our mics hot by pledging your support today at heritageradionetwork.org donate. Thanks for listening. You're listening to In The Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Joe Campanelli, and In The Drink is the show that brings you some of the most interesting people in the beverage industry. I do want to let you know that today's show is actually a uh, pre-record. We're recording this during our summer break, so... 
you're probably going to be listening to this in about two or three weeks after um, after we've recorded. And uh, during the time that uh, that we were on break, there's been a little bit of an announcement for myself. So, I, I'm, you know, it's my show. I get to do a little same, uh, shameless <laughs> self-plug. Why not? Um, my uh, new restaurant, Fausto, was announced in the New York Times. Uh, we're going to open up in the former Franny's space um we uh my, my partner the chef aaron shampoo and i were big franny's fans we love the restaurant and we're sad to see it go but really excited about what we can do uh in that space and hopefully you'll have another great place to drink wine in brooklyn um oh thank you david thank you very much um Speaking of drinking wine in Brooklyn, I have one of my neighbors lives right down the block from me, uh, and it's a shame that we don't hang out more often. Whenever we do, it's a great time, and I'm glad that we could uh, we could bring him here in studio today. We have Charles Anton, who's a senior international is the senior international wine specialist and auctioneer at Zaki's Wine Auctions. Um, he does a ton of charity work as well. Uh, he's drinking great wine all the time. Just an all around interesting, amazing guy. He's written for a bunch of other public Publications, including the New York Times, Punch, Food and Wine. Uh, he also has an MFA in fiction from NYU, my alma mater. Uh, and uh, there's all, a lot all more. All kinds of stuff. All yeah, sorts of stuff. Forever, yeah. I feel like, yeah, I mean, you, you have a commercial pilot's license. You, I do, yeah. I haven't flown in about... In a long time, though, I don't. I wouldn't trust myself behind the yoke right now. But uh, it's I not. Did. It's not like uh, uh, like riding a bike. No, you know, uh, I've never tested it. Uh, it was. It was a, another career path in a, in a former life that, you know, it doesn't really. It doesn't uh, mesh so well with the drinking. With the but, uh, I just, I decided not to go down that road. I did have a fantasy about becoming like a bush pilot in Botswana or something like that, and and uh, you know, spending my twenties doing that, but. Do you ever get? Do you ever? I mean, do, does anyone ever say to you, "Hey, if there's ever like a, uh, uh, you know, a, a competition for who's like going to be the next most interesting man in the world?" Is it? You should like throw your name in the hat. At oh least. no, I mean, my, you know, my, I don't know that I'm that interesting. <laughs> I, I have a lot of um, like silly licenses and things, like you know, but I don't know if that makes me qualifies me as most interesting. I have like you know my scuba license, my pilot's license, my forklift license, my. Like, you can yeah, relate a, to well, that's a, the thing about that he could relate to anybody yeah right the forklift driver or the pi- or the the private jet owner yeah sure yeah, yeah that's that's generous of you i would say but i appreciate it i did i do have a i was a certified competition judge for the kentucky barbecue uh, excuse me kansas city barbecue society uh for a while now of all the things that you like your potential career paths this is the one that i i would most be interested yeah. in doing for myself i don't think i don't think it was ever quite at the career path level but uh yeah i had to quit because you know when you judge a barbecue competition you're taking a bite of each one and it's not like a wine tasting where you uh-huh. spit you know you're not spitting out like a half chewed rib or something like that you swallow it so even if you're minimizing the amount of intake on barbecue like you, you judge a competition you're eating like four or five pounds of barbecue and it takes me every ounce of my willpower to stay at my current weight and like spending my summer eating barbecue every weekend like to the tune of like five or six pounds is not was not going to work out well like the the people who are really good at it you know they they really invest some some time and probably a few maybe a few years off the end of their life in doing that um the other thing about barbecue right is like 
when it comes to the serious, serious competitions, there's not that many in the Northeast, like at least that are sanctioned by the Kansas City Barbecue Society, I found. Um, there's great barbecue in New York for sure, but in the terms of the competitions, you know, you kind of got to go to the epicenters of barbecue in this country. Uh, and for that particular society, it's Kansas City. Okay, so. I mean, this is a wine show, but I, so I want to ask you, two, I wanna ask you two, two quick questions about barbecue. Judge. Number one, is there a marked difference between like competition, competition meat and like what you might get at like hometown barbecue, which I love? Yeah, well, so the competition, the way they do it is you're judged on the, the specific categories of barbecue and they, they, they present it. Uh, to you in a way that's supposed to look attractive and it's supposed to be uniform so that every competitor is presenting it in the same way and they present it in a little styrofoam clam thing with like a piece of parsley uh, and uh, that's interesting and, that's a nice uh, flourish yeah nice flourish exactly because <laughs> they you judge it on looks you know no one wants like disgusting looking ribs um, and, and is, is there palate fatigue is there the same way that maybe like if you if you taste like a hundred Cabernets like there's no way that hundredth Cabernet you're like as excited about as the first one but yeah, for me yeah I mean I don't want anyone to think that I'm even remotely knowledgeable about barbecue like anyone can become a Kansas City Barbecue Society certified judge it takes you you actually and this is not a joke you actually they make you take a course and obviously you have to pay a fee which is the real reason you have to take the course uh, and then they actually make you raise your hand and take an oath to uphold the, you know, barbecue tradition in this country. And, uh, and uh, I, I didn't, I honestly didn't do it enough to really become sort of ensconced in barbecue culture. So, I, you know, I, it was fun to do for a while, but I, I do not uh, think of myself as a barbecue expert. That's okay. for sure. <laughs> where, okay, well, last, last one, barbecue. Where, where would you Favorite barbecue in New York? York? No, no, not favorite. <laughs> <laughs> where would I eat barbecue in New York? Yeah. Um, I eat barbecue when I, and, and for the reasons I said before, I don't eat barbecue that often anymore. But when I do, it's usually in my neighborhood in, uh, in Brooklyn and I go to, you know, Dinosaur, which is right there. But I love the wings. Okay. So you had all these potential, uh, <laughs> it's not, I guess that's not barbecue. Like, no, it's barbecue. That's barbecue. Yeah. 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 yeah it's smoke and heat and all that stuff. Uh, you had all these opportunities. It seems like, you know, you had an MFA in writing. You're a really talented writer. I've read a bunch of your articles. Um, you, uh, could have been a commercial airline pilot or someone who was like a Bush pilot, which I'm not even <laughs> positive what that is other than it's not the commercial airline pilot. And, uh, and you ended up being a, uh, you know, like the top of the industry in the, the wine auction world and working at just this outstanding company that seems to just be having an, a huge amount of growth. How did, how did you get to do this? Uh, I, you know, I came to wine in my, um, in my uh, mid to late twenties, I would say, and uh, you know, I don't have a great Genesis story. I mean, I was just sort of bitten by the bug, got interested in it, started reading about wine, tasting what I could afford, um, and I actually I lived in France prior to that, but even that wasn't really. I mean, when I lived in France, I was drinking, you know, Cronenborg, um, Pastis. Um, you know, I was living on like six hundred euros a month, uh, teaching English, and uh, wasn't. I, I lived on the mouth of the Loire River. Um, which, you know, isn't that far as the crow flies from, uh, some pretty major wine regions, uh, from Bordeaux, but, uh, never went to Bordeaux, um, never really tasted all that much wine. And, uh, when I came back, uh, yeah, there's not, there wasn't one thing. It was just, I really didn't like what I was doing my, the job that I had at the time and, um, got interested in wine, started reading about it, started looking into the types of jobs you can have in the wine business. And, uh, I wasn't necessarily interested uh, or 
you know, I didn't have any ins in the restaurant industry and it wasn't something that I was interested in mainly because none of my friends worked in the restaurant industry and, and just the, uh, time, you know, it's my friends were home in the evenings and at work during the day. And I kind of wanted to have that same schedule. And, uh, I wasn't really interested in, you know, distribution. Obviously when you live in New York city, working in production is a little tricky because not all that many vineyards in uh, Manhattan. And, uh, you know, I came across a, a job at an auction house and it was, um, Sotheby's actually, and, uh, applied and didn't get the job and applied for a job at Christie's and didn't get that job. And then Christie's called me back three months later, uh, and offered me basically what was an entry level position in the wine department there. So I started, um, at an entry level position in the wine department at Christie's, um, which was, and you know, Christie's was the sort of original wine auction house. Christie's is fond of saying that, their first auction in 1766 was in part a wine auction. You know, it was a, it was a um, estate sale, but the estate included wine. And then, uh, you know, flash forward a couple hundred years, Michael Broadbent started uh, selling wine at auction at Christie's uh, London in, I believe, the 60s, I want to say, and later came to, um, later came to Chicago for a bit and also obviously uh, New York. And, um, so I thought it was a good place to be, and I started there and sort of worked my way up. And wait, uh, what was that path like working your way up? What were the different milestones that, that you reached? Uh, it started for me, uh, you know, at the time, uh, I didn't know anything. I mean, the entry-level position at Christie's, you didn't have to be so wine knowledgeable. It was more of a administrative position. So, uh, you know, to me, it was just learning about the wines, learning about the industry, uh, how auctions work, um, how, the, how the business of selling wine at auction works. Uh, and then obviously learning about the wines you sell. I mean, whatever, I think whatever area of the wine business you're, you're in, you're going to learn sort of niche knowledge that has to do with that, that business. And part of it, obviously, are the wines themselves. I mean, auction is very focused on the most rare and expensive wines in the world. Um, but, you know, a lot of it also has to do with how you, the nuts and bolts of running the auction. Whereas I'm sure if you work at a restaurant, you've got to know the types of wines you sell in your restaurant. But there's also a hell of a lot that goes on, uh, on, uh, on the business side of things and making sure everything's running smoothly. So I did that for uh, a couple of years and I found that it was really interesting and it suited me. And, um, uh, I hung out and eventually I was, uh, promoted a couple of times until I started doing, you know, the term in the business is wine specialist, but it's really wine auction specialist, uh, start working with clients, bringing in private consignments. Um, and it went from there. And what, so what was driving you during this time? Because I know you were simultaneously working on your writing and, and getting your MFA, right? I imagine that was happening about the same time. But what was driving you to keep going further and further uh, with wine? What was, what was most motivating you? You know, I, uh, part of the thing that helped me a lot, and this is probably not the answer that you, uh, it's not all that inspirational. But to be honest, I, you know, I got my MFA from NYU and I did it half time while I was working at Christie's. And, um, you know, one thing that sort of uh, kept me going at a, a day job, um, and no matter how fun and enjoyable your day job is, it's still a day job, uh, is, you know, having other outlets for your creativity and things you do in your life. So I've always, you know, going back to just like flying or, you know, judging barbecue or something like that, uh, you know, I think at least for me and my personal life, uh, if you start to, uh, go down the rabbit hole too much in one aspect of your life, whether it's your job or a specific hobby or something like that. Uh, I tend to get 
uh, bored's not the right word. I tend to um, uh, lose interest. Yeah, I think. And so if it, if it was like an all-encompassing hundred-hour work right. week, and you probably maybe you wouldn't still be working with wine since it allowed <clears throat> you to have this job that you that you enjoy that you're passionate about but also it let you explore your other passions that that's exactly right you know as an as an entry-level position it was a nine-to-five job it's not anymore really for me unfortunately but you know during that time i was able to publish short fiction i was able to uh in like the vqr and glimmer train i mean i was able to write for food and wine magazine um and uh and have a job that was still pretty cool i mean even though i was doing administrative work it wasn't like, you know, working in a diamond mine. It was still pretty cool, and I got to taste some rare wines. Yeah, there were wines. Like, what was the office office like? I, I pictured silver trays with fancy wines around all the time. You know, at that time, it actually kind of was. Uh, you know, my interview, um, I remember uh, I was called into Christie's at 20 Rockefeller Plaza, and uh, I had uh, been cooking earlier, and I had sliced my finger open pretty badly. Uh, didn't need stitches, but you know, if you slice the tip of your finger, it, it bleeds quite a bit. I mean, those are, it's sensitive area, a lot of blood vessels it was bleeding quite a bit. It was my left hand and, uh, I wrapped it in a bandage, uh, and went into the interview, uh, at Christie's at 20 Rockefeller Plaza. And I'll always remember that I was sitting there being interviewed with the guy who was then head of the department and a, uh, I want to say like Butler, I don't, he was like a, a service guy came in and, and he asked if we needed anything and the head of the department said tea would be great. And he actually brought in tea on a silver um, uh, tea service. So, you know, I think in some ways Christie's is trying to live up to the uh, facade of the most utterly ridiculous, like British, you know, uh, stereotype you. that they you can totally yeah. you. <laughs> check out all the stuff we have. Yeah. So I'm there uh, drinking tea and, you know, answering questions, you know, what's your favorite wine? Where do you see yourself in five years? Things like that. And uh, meanwhile, my left hand is just bleeding profusely and the bandage is filling up with blood. And um, so I'm sipping tea with my right hand. And eventually, uh, you know, we got to go and shook my hand. And, um, you know, like I said, luckily it was my left hand I shook with my right. You know, I think I had I was a little woozy from the blood loss. So maybe he saw that for like a certain aloofness that people look for uh when dealing with the super wealthy i don't know i don't know but yeah. uh, or maybe he thought you really love wine and you were partaking yeah. earlier that day yeah exactly, that, exactly. That, that was maybe a positive for but i got the job and the office you know the, the upside i would say is yeah. that you do get to taste some really rare wines and drink them with with clients and those clients have become friends over the years and uh you know they're not wines that i could would necessarily find or could necessarily afford on my own um, you, you get an interesting introduction to that. You get to travel the world meeting these people. Um, you know, the downside is day to day. It's a, like any other job, right? There's it's a lot of spreadsheets. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you are moving a luxury product from wealthy people to other wealthy people, which isn't exactly uh, God's work. But um, but it, can it be must fun. be um, interesting to be like someone who's young and like, you know, trying to make it. Uh, and to deal with people who are like extremely wealthy and like you see what they're like spending regularly on their uh, on their products. And there's like a, a mutually beneficial experience there. But also, uh, I don't know, it must be very strange. To yeah, it's pretty strange. You know, um, I mean, how you know, it's a it's it's an interesting topic, you know, just in general, like I don't luxury goods in general, whether it's wine, whether it's, you know, a car, you know, a hundred thousand dollar car, even a $50,000 car doesn't get you from point A to point B necessarily better, uh, you know, than a $10,000 car, a $5,000 car, a $2,000 car. But, you know, people want certain brands for certain reasons. Uh, 
you know, people spend money on different things for different reasons. People have different amounts of money, obviously. So, but there is, you know, spending three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars on a case of wine. Um, there can be something a little bit uh, uh, gross about that um, at times, um, but unless which you unless it's for charity, right? I, and you do a ton of charity work. Uh, yeah, I, right? I do. Yeah, most a lot of, of charity mo- auctions? I do a lot of charity auctions these days. I'm doing something like 65 charity auctions a year. Um, a lot of them don't have anything to do with wine, though. To be honest with you, really? Yeah. Oh, so <clears throat> I became an, later in my career at Christie's. I became a uh, an auctioneer, uh, both on the commercial side and the charity side. And uh, since then, I've sort of grown that aspect of what I do. And I've worked with every organization from Planned Parenthood to uh, the Brady Center for the Prevention of Gun Violence to uh, the Nashville Wine Auction to uh, lots of um, private and public schools in New York City. Like last year alone, I did charity auctions everywhere from Nashville to Puerto Rico to Los Angeles to Hong Kong uh, to, yeah, all over the place. That's amazing. I really commend you for that work. And I I think there's more potential and possibility for the wine industry to give back. There's an event that I did every year uh, for the university settlement that I don't think is happening mm-hmm. any Yeah, longer. I remember it. Um, I actually heard that event, or a, an event for them. I don't know if it's the same one. But. Yeah, and, and they just they, they use the wine industry and love of wine to like to really give back and, and do, a, do a ton of good. And I think there, there's more potential for that. Uh, uh, but do you, I want to ask you, do you remember your first auction? Like, How did that even come about to that Hey, you know, you're a wine specialist, but do do most wine specialists end up doing auctions or uh, on the com- like a commercial auction? At yeah, Christie's? a commercial auction. Uh, yeah, I mean, the way that it worked is uh, you have to audition, um, and uh, you know, being an auctioneer is about standing in front of a group of people and being able to talk. And not, like, some people, um, completely normal conversation with them, but they're just not public speakers. Like they get up in front of a crowd and they just freeze. Uh, and if that's you, you know, auctioneering is probably not for you. You have to, you know, have some facility with language in front of a crowd. Um, so you, you try out and then once you, um, it seems like you're good, uh, you're trained on the, what's called the footing. I don't know if we need to go into like the minutia of, of it's auctioneering. It's kind of interesting actually, yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, so, footing? Yeah. so the footing is, you know, at an auction, there are absentee bids and someone might leave an absentee bid of $1,000. Um, and then you might have a bidder in the room. Uh, bidding against the absentee bid. Um, and I'll look down as the auctioneer at the book, the auctioneer's book, and see that I have an absentee bid of 1000 Now, if someone in the room wants to bid um, 900 say, so if I, if I call for 900 they raise their hand at 900 I have 950 which is a book bid, and then they raise their hand at 1000 we have a problem because the person in the room is bidding 1000 I have an absentee bid of 1000 mm-hmm. So the footing is just making sure that where you open the bidding, where you accept the bids, you're always having people bid against each other and not on the same foot. Mm. So in other words, you would open the bidding at 850, they would take 850, you have nine, they have 950, I have a thousand here in my book, they would take 1100 and then they would be the winning bidder. So it's about doing that very quickly and with big numbers. And big numbers. And what about the, how do you get the most out of the room? How do you, how do you, like... What what is it? What makes a successful auctioneer? Uh, you know, I think it's a, a bunch of different things. I mean, <clears throat> at least at Christie's, there's only maybe, you know, there's only a few people who are auctioneers. So we ended up auctioneering everyone's department. So I don't know anything about Chinese works of art or um, post-war and contemporary art or watches, um, but I auctioneered all of those uh, auctions. Um, and it, the key is, you know, you want to put people at ease uh, and 
make it be seamless and make sure they're comfortable raising their hand. And you're trying to facilitate a transaction. I mean, in a commercial auction, the people are there because they want a specific bottle of wine mm -hmm. or a work of art. Um, you're not necessarily at that point convincing someone that they're going to spend X amount of dollars on a vase or a bottle of DRC. You know, that's sort of, they've made that decision. What you can do um, is get that one more bid out of them. Um, that's really the key of the auctioneer is to keep people bidding, to play people off of one another so that that bidding keeps going up and up and up. You know, you get you get caught up in it, and that's sort of the idea of an auction. And the excitement. The excitement, yeah. You encourage people to attend auctions in person. They're going to... Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, they're fun. fun, right? I mean, I work at Zaki's now, um, number one wine auction house, uh, and our auctions are a blast. I mean, we have auctions at... Number one in terms of, like, overall sales? Overall sales in the markets we serve. So some right. other auction houses have auctions, like, all over Europe. We're not doing auctions in Geneva, for example. So, um, And our auctions are fun. I mean, in Hong Kong, our auctions are at the Mandarin Oriental. There'll be 125 people there. Here in New York... You know, they're at Smith and Walensky or they're at La Bernadette or numerous other restaurants we've held them at. And they're events. I mean, we'll have 100 people there. We open up tons of wine. People bring their own wine. Um, you know, auctions are done over lunch. Uh, it's just a fun. They're free and open to the public. All auctions are free and open to the public. Um, and uh, and it's just a fun way to spend a, a Saturday if you're into wine. Jeez, that sounds amazing. Uh, I want to hear more about that. We're gonna have to, actually going to have to take just a quick break. We'll be back with more with Charles Anton from Zaki's Wine Auctions right after this. Michter's Distillery is a proud sponsor of In the Drink and HeritageRadioNetwork.org. At Michter's, our passion is making the finest whiskeys possible. When you only make small batch and single barrel whiskeys like Michter's does, your whiskey has to be perfect. No detail is too small. From careful attention to the wood used in the construction of our barrels to lower barrel entry proof before heat-cycled aging in advance of exacting chill filtration. And no whiskey gets bottled until Michter's master distiller says it's just right. Michter's cost be damned, taste is everything attitude is apparent in every sip of its smooth, rich whiskeys. Is it worth it? A lot of spirits lovers seem to think so. Food & Wine magazine called Michter's the best American whiskey. Bon Appetit said, it's amazing. And the Wall Street Journal had one special word for Michter's. Phenomenal. For more information, visit michters.com or simply visit your favorite bartender or retailer and ask for Michter's. All right, we're back here with Charles Anton on In the Drink of Zaki's Wine Auctions. Um, you know, Charles, I've always enjoyed the auctions that I've been to. I haven't gone to a ton of them, but I feel like it's a, a really great experience. Um, I know we kind of touched on this before, but you, you really encouraged people to to try to attend auctions. Um, do you think that it's worth it for you know for everyone, even if uh, say you don't have a big budget or you're not even planning on on buying wine? Can can someone just go to an auction? Yeah, I mean, I think you know the the big expensive wines are the ones that make the uh, headlines and um, they're splashy and so forth. But uh, that's not, you know, that's not the majority of the wines being sold at auction. Um, the best place to start for me is online auctions. Um, you know, Zaki's has an online auction every month, for example, uh, a thousand lots. Um, you know, you can buy wines in these auctions for, um, you know, $30, $40. Um, and what's cool about them is, number one, they're smaller lots. Like, if you want to take a buy something that you're not familiar with, it's not like you're committing to a case. Um, but the other thing is, you know, if you're only drinking this kind of sort of, if you're only drinking mature Bordeaux, if you're only drinking Burgundy, you know, 
we sell wines from every region at auction, but it is somewhat French focused. But if you're only drinking Burgundy, if you're only drinking Bordeaux, you know, you're definitely uh, missing out a, a huge portion of the wine industry. Um, but, you know, conversely, like if you only drink rosé or you're only drinking, you know, young German Riesling, I think you're missing out, too. I mean, there's a reason that these sort of classic regions, Bordeaux, Burgundy, Champagne, um, are what they are. Uh, and it's because they still make great wines. And they actually, you know, some people might not know this about a place like Bordeaux, but they actually make great wines at many different price points. Um, and if you've if you've never had um, wine with bottle age on it. Um, you know, a lot of these wines were meant to age and they improve with age. And that's sort of the reason to come to auction. You know, if you're buying wines with 5, 10, 15 years of bottle age from a, a retailer, um, oftentimes, um, you know, oftentimes it depends where you live. But, uh, you know, oftentimes those retailers bought from auction. I mean, sometimes they're sourcing from private sellers, but oftentimes they bought from auction. So um, you can skip the middleman and come straight to an auction. So. Uh, you know, there's something to fit every budget, certainly. I mean, you've got to weed through, you know, if, you're, if your budget's low, you know, you just uh, tune out some of the more expensive stuff. But there's definitely fines in there, I'd say. I feel like there's stuff to learn, too. And you have a, a great auctioneer um, who can sometimes give a, a, some really good insight into, into the lot that's coming up to the wines that are coming up uh, that maybe, maybe you don't know as, a, a, you know, a, 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 someone who's just learning about wine still. Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, you... I mean, there's not a ton of time for that, right? You have to move through things, but... So the, the the learning comes... Like, it depends what you want to learn. I mean, if you're learning about the minutia of the winemaking process of some of the wines sold at auction, uh, you can do that by studying the catalogs. You can do it by talking to the people who work at the auctions. Uh, and obviously, the best way is by coming to an auction. You know, we open up a ton of rare wine at our auctions. Um, our people who come bring things and it's it's a very convivial atmosphere where everyone shares uh so you know just tasting wines at an auction is a good way to go about it um you know during the auctions do go pretty quick so you're not learning so much about uh the wines themselves at an auction if you're interested in uh the market uh the price of mm -hmm. certain wines you certainly learn a lot about that but um it, can you think of uh, a recent uh auction lot of, of wines that went up where like it was. I mean, I'm sure there's like just outstanding wines that come across, you know, the across your table all the time. But like, what what is something you're like? Oh, I really would have liked to have tried that. <laughs> that is a lucky. I mean, well, as a lucky person, that's something that I would really, really like to taste. Well, uh, uh, so it depends what hat I'm wearing. I mean, uh, you know. Personally, like personally, like, yeah. you'd like to like bring home and like oh, well, I mean, share I, with your wife. I buy stuff at auction all the time, like yeah. and it and it's like you know I worked in Beaujolais, I worked at Vendange, like I worked a harvest in in Beaujolais, and so you know those are the types of wines that you know you really don't see at auction that much because even the most expensive Beaujolais, they're just not expensive enough to sort of move the needle in a commercial setting in an auction, um, but you do find them in online auctions and things like that. Um, and sometimes great vintages like 09, um, you know, Cru Beaujolais, you can still find at auction for the price of, that they were released at or less. Oh, that's um, cool. So, you know, for me, who likes to, and, I, and I, when I lived in France, like I was saying, I lived in the Loire Valley. Um, so there's a soft spot in my heart for those wines. And if you've ever had 10, 15-year-old Sauvignon or, um, you know, something like that or older Chinon, um, you know, those wines, they're great young, but they do mature really elegantly. And for me, at least in my knowledge, the, really the only way to get them is either to age them yourself or to buy them at auction. Um, so, or unless you have some some inns in, in France, the various cavistes and so forth. But. Mm -hmm. 
and, and so you have a ton of things going on. You're doing a bunch of auctions. Can you kind of just give us an idea as to like, I, I'm sure you don't have like an average week, but how much time do you spend? How many auctions do you do a year? What are some of the other things you have to do to prepare for an auction? What are the other responsibilities you have uh, with, with Zachies? Sure. Um, <clears throat> so the way that the auction season works is, uh, you know, most of the wines we sell, almost all, um, are from private collections. Uh, we do offer uh, winery direct uh, wines at auction sometimes, but the majority of what we sell is private collections. So, and we work on a pretty big lead time. So, for example, um, this is being aired later, but as as we sit here, it's the end of August, and uh, we're preparing for a December auction now. And the reason for that is we travel the world to source private collections, and that might be um, quite literally anywhere in the world. I mean, we, we source wine from all over Europe, all over Asia. Uh, we either source or sell all over Asia, all over Europe, all over North and South America. Um, the logistics are tricky. You're, everything is temperature controlled from point A to point B uh, into our warehouse. Um, and we've got to put together a, a catalog, which is then printed and disseminated among our clientele. So um, you know, a lot of our time is spent traveling around, visiting with clients who are either buying from us our auction or potentially looking to uh, sell their collections. Um, so you'd be part of the team that's actually like analyzing the seller and saying, is this exactly. something that we think we can sell? Is this something that's authentic? And Yeah, people yeah. come to people want to sell their wines at auctions for all different reasons. I mean, you know, they say the three D's of the auction business are uh, death, divorce and divestment. But, you know, that's not that's a little bit of it. That's not really the case in the auction side. I mean, that's a little bit more in the estate side, maybe. But, um, you know, at auction, people sell a lot of times because they've been collecting for a long time and they suddenly realize they have more wine that they can drink. Um, sometimes people's tastes change. You know, mm -hmm. they used to love California Cabernet. Now they drink white burgundy. Uh, and they is, just, that, is that very common? That's kind of what I've uh, heard on the periphery that like, um, and, and a couple of the collectors I met, like they get into it with expensive, big cult cabs. And then as they're, as they learn more and taste more, they like more delicate and nuanced wines. Yeah. I think there's, there's certainly people like that, but I mean, you know, those Cabernets are still are, selling. Strong, they're, yeah. They're yeah. still successful for a reason. I mean, people enjoy those. I mean, look, it goes the other way too, right? I mean, I've, I have numerous clients who, um, uh, for whatever reason, uh, as they get older, sometimes um, those sort of delicate, nuanced burgundies, they just don't taste like much when you get into your, into your late 80s. You, you know? need something a little more high impact. Yeah, a little more like high impact, yeah. So, you know, it goes both ways. And I, it's for me personally, like I don't, you know, I, I like all the wines. I think there's a place for a place for all of them. I don't want them all at the same time necessarily, but... Uh, there's a place for each one, so. And something I've been curious to ask you is, you know, when you got started, the auction world I imagine was very different from how it is now. How how is it how has it changed, especially with with things like uh, what happened with with Rudy and the the billionaires vinegar and and some of the like just you know some of the the, the challenges that have come around wine authentication and some pretty. I don't know if they're sophisticated, but let's call them malicious guys yeah. out there. Well, um, you know, the biggest change to wine auctions, number one has been the popularity. I mean, they've grown quite a bit. Um, you know, people, uh, I went to Asia five times last year. I mean, five times throughout, yeah, it's a, it's a far way to go, uh, five, five times a year, but, um, people are all over the world getting more and more 
interested in the types of wines we sell at auction. Um, so that's a big change. Uh, the internet auctions is a huge change. I mean, the internet auctions didn't mm -hmm. exist um, when I started in the business. Um, and, you know, it wasn't that long ago. I mean, I started doing this 12 years ago. Uh, and um, that's been a huge, huge change. And, you know, as far as uh, counterfeits and so forth, you know, wherever there's a luxury good, um, people are going to try to counterfeit it. I mean, counterfeit paintings have been going on as long as there have been paintings. Uh, counterfeit furniture. Uh, you know, you could walk down Canal Street. I'm sure you could find a, a Louis Vuitton. I'm sure someone will sell you a Louis Vuitton handbag. Um, but uh, it was only a matter of time as wine became more and more expensive that someone was going to try to counterfeit it. Um, but, you know, uh, the key is to just be diligent, to educate yourself on what's out there, who's doing what, um, educate yourself about the fraud, use the resources that you have, you know, close relationships with the chateau, with experts and so forth. And, you know, wine's an interesting thing because, you know, I recently was in Bordeaux. Actually, it wasn't that recently anymore. It was a year ago. It was, it was actually almost exactly a year ago today. And we were working with <clears throat> a negociant um, who has been a family-owned business that has been selling wine in Bordeaux uh, for 250 years, and they're still owned by the same family. And they have the handwritten records uh, from the 18th century, and they're all written in English because it was they weren't they weren't a French family; they were a negociant family living in France. Uh, handwritten records selling to London, probably. Mm -hmm. a yeah, lot, yeah, a lot, a lot to London. Yeah, but all over actually. They're, they actually uh, the U.S. was one of their biggest biggest markets actually, um, but they have handwritten recipes uh, for Bordeaux. So um, you know, take a barrel of Alicante, a barrel of Hermitage, mix it with you know, two barrels of local wine of claret. And there's recipes, um, there's um, uh, requests from clients for different blends and so forth. Um, so it just sort of throws into relief what we talk about when we talk about fake wine. I mean, would you call that fake wine? I don't know. I mean, it was, it was you know, there was no law against it, certainly, um, but it wasn't Bordeaux either. So it's certainly not what we think about as Bordeaux. We only talk about Bordeaux today, post Post AOC, but um, that's amazing. It's amazing. But as as the industry, I mean, like, I would be afraid to buy from a you know a wine auction that I've never heard of, right? Uh, uh, but I imagine that the major players like you guys have are, like really take this stuff extremely seriously, right? Like, of course, has has <clears throat> it been like has there been like a step up in what what everyone does at this point? Yeah, well, yeah. yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, I think I mean, I think a couple things. Um, you know, we take very, we take a lot of care to know the provenance of the wines we sell. Um, we do a lot of research. Um, also, you know, if you're buying Sauvignon and fifty dollar bottles of Bordeaux, I don't think you're at risk um, for for uh, right. know, counterfeiting. No one's schemes. counterfeiting a, a like a one dollar bill. Right, exactly. Not, bill, yeah. not that we know of, anyway. But you know, uh, I think that as as when you would buy anything of value um you know you just do a little homework i mean the the team myself and our team are there to talk to you about where the collections came from and how they were stored and nothing really nothing goes into our auctions that we're not that we don't stand behind um but you know it's always important to talk about the conditions like some people care about label conditions for example but you know for me i like a, a dirty label because it means you know a damp cool seller mm -hmm. um plus it's you know looks nice so
Yeah, yeah. It looks like it's it has that that. Yeah, you feel like you're it. Downton Abbey. Yeah, you know, it looks <laughs> nice. Well, how do you guys decide what wines go go to like the online auctions versus in, in person? You know, the online auctions are focused on um, what we call like taster size lots. You know, we typically won't sell a original wooden case of Bordeaux in an auction unless it's fairly low value. Um, the lots themselves are fairly low value. Um, not necessarily means the wines are, are low value, but yeah. the, the lots are. So if you had, you know, two bottles of wine, we might put it in a net sale where as a full case in the original wood of the same wine, we might put it in a live sale. But it's there's it's not a it's not a uh, you know, it's not a science. Um, you know, there's there's different things in different auctions. I mean, and you find things that you might not think that you might find in a wine auction. Like we had a huge collection of Clos Rougiard um, recently yeah. in a in a wine auction. So. I, you know what? I, I with my opening, I'm gonna come and look more at your online auctions. I've always like gone the big catalog and like circle things and tried to go if I, if I can, and if not, like send in some bids for for things. But I'm gonna check out the the online auctions. That sounds like a good way, especially if you don't have a ton of time. Yeah, they're fun. I mean, it's like fun. eBay style, right? They're open and then they close ten days later. And if you're the winning bidder when they close, you win the lot. So, Dude, I want to find some like old some old Bergen uh, old uh, uh, Beaujolais. Yeah, you can you can find it. I mean, uh, you know, it depends. It, it's not like a retail experience where you walk into a store, hand a guy a credit card, he hands you a bottle of wine, and it's over. Like you do have to, you know, you either have to enlist me or my colleagues to do the work for you, which is okay. our job and it's what we can do. If you say, "Hey, I'm looking for Old Beaujolais," shoot me an email when it comes up. We'll do that. Or if you, you know, more likely, it's usually Burgundy from a certain producer or you know a certain vintage of Bordeaux that's your mom's you know birth year or whatever it might be. And we'll let you know. You know, I'm looking for mature champagne from 1982. We'll let you know. Um, but uh, uh, but there is a little bit of you know we sell a lot of wine. There's a, there's some combing through of of lists of wine to to find some of the gems, which you sometimes have to do. But for me, like that's part of the fun. Um, you know, if you just want a a bottle of red immediately to have with your pasta dinner, auction might not be the best. But if you know you have a little bit of storage and you can plan a little bit. Then you're good. Then you're set. Yeah, I think um, that that's super exciting. Um, I know you guys always have a lot of, of things going on. What's uh, what's something where some of our listeners might be able to find you at? Uh, is there a charity event coming up? Is there a, a Zaki's event that uh, or auction coming up that that our listeners can find you? Yeah, um, uh, I mean, there's so many charity events. Uh, the Zaki's events. Um, so when is this? When are we going to be on the air? Probably early September. Okay, so David, is that right? Early September. Okay, so if you'd like to come to a wine auction, um, we have one on September 15th and 16th in at Smith & Walensky in New York City. And you can RSVP just by uh, sending me a note. Excellent. Uh, all right, Charles Hanton, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Uh, Charles Hanton, uh, wine specialist, the, in, the senior international wine specialist and auctioneer at Zaki's Wine Auction, and my friend and neighbor in Brooklyn. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll be seeing you around the, the hood soon. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks, Joe. Thanks uh, so much to all of you guys for listening. I want to thank David, who put the show together, and everyone at Heritage Radio Network. This has been In the Drink on heritageradionetwork.org. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. 
enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.